If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today, I'm excited to talk with Dr. Chris Lambert. Chris is the author of Next Level Nonprofit, Build a Dream Team, and Increase Lasting Impact. He's also a TEDx speaker, has been named on lists like Cranes 40 Under 40, Building Design Plus Construction 40 Under 40, and Smart Business Dealmaker of the Year. Chris is also the founder and CEO of Life Remodeled, honored as one of Detroit's best managed nonprofits, where they focus on neighborhood revitalization. His unique model repurposes vacant properties into one-stop hubs of opportunity where families can thrive. They fill these hubs with the best and brightest nonprofit organizations and facilitate collaboration to create far greater life transformation together than was possible alone previously. Together with community, they ensure three things. One, to make certain that more Detroit students perform at or above grade level in math and reading. Two, that more families have access to essential health and wellness services. And three, They ensure that more community members obtain higher paying jobs and achieve economic self-sufficiency. Now, this was not Chris's original life plan. He pursued a degree in marketing at Indiana University with the hope of attending law school and launching a career as a real estate developer. A spiritual awakening during his junior year led Chris to follow a calling and earn his master's in divinity and his doctorate in preaching at Fuller and Gordon-Conwell Seminaries. He is a true servant leader who embodies the values of wisdom, humility, and compassion. Chris, welcome to the show. Tammy, it's an honor to be with you here today. We are honored. We're excited that you're here. So let's just jump in. Give our listeners an example of one of your neighborhood revitalizations or transformations. One of my favorite things to do whenever I'm asked this question is to first start with why we do what we do before I get into what we do. And how we do it, or even what's happened. And the, the why that gets us out of bed every day to do the work that we're doing is because we're absolutely convinced Detroiters have all the talent they need, but many don't have access to all the opportunities they deserve. And so our response to that reality is, as you mentioned earlier, to repurpose large vacant school buildings in Detroit into what we call one-stop hubs of opportunity for entire families to thrive And that's uh, a part of our strategy that's evolved significantly over the years. And Tammy, as you're aware, Life Remodeled started off with a very different strategy, but we were asked by Detroit Public Schools in the year 2017 to repurpose the old Durfee Elementary Middle School, which is 143,000 square feet. And it looks like Harry Potter School, beautiful (laughs) building, right? But the reality is, when a school building closes in a, a disinvested neighborhood, then that's like a dagger to the heart of hope for many people in the community. 
And so we were able to take this building that was just about to become vacant and repurpose it in a way that brought tremendous value, not only to students, but now to entire families. And that was 2017. And what I want to highlight is just this summer, a Gallup poll, Gallup Research announced the findings of a survey they did in the city of Detroit. I didn't even know they were doing this survey until they released the results. And they surveyed 12,000 Detroiters across the city, asking them about their perception of their ability to thrive based on the neighborhood they lived in. And questions were asked around things like your access to economic mobility because of the neighborhood you live in, workforce development opportunities, health and wellness opportunities, educational uh, opportunities and police community relations and collaboration among the community. And so out of all the neighborhoods in Detroit, the Durfee neighborhood, which is where the Durfee Innovation Society is, ranked number two. And that was very affirming of the work that we're doing, that it really moves the needle. Because if this study would have been taken six, seven years ago, would have been a much different result, right? Over 80% of the people who lived within four and a half square miles were living at or below the poverty line. And so I'm very excited about not only the data that shows what's working here, but day in and day out, we're experiencing life transformation with students and families, and it, it makes the work worth it. Yeah. Well, it's completely inspiring too. I love reading about, watching, just hearing the buzz about what you're doing. And one of the things I love about it is that you're doing it with the neighborhood. You know, you always talk about the neighborhood volunteers and how they amaze you, how they inspire you, and they really are inspiring. Talk to us about the vital role that volunteers play in revitalizing neighborhoods in your model. And even just to go back for a quick second to those three things I mentioned that we fill these buildings with health and wellness opportunities and after-school youth programs and workforce development initiatives, those three ideas all come from the neighborhoods where we serve. Those are the three main topics that community members bring up regularly when discussing increased opportunities that they want to see in your community. And so when it comes to volunteerism, we've mobilized over 77,000 volunteers over the last eight years. And we do that predominantly through what we call an annual six-day project where we mobilize about 5,000 volunteers over six straight days and we beautify several square miles of Detroit. And that work is very meaningful on multiple levels because blight, for those who are listeners outside of the city of Detroit, may not be something that you're highly familiar with, but you got to think of it like this. Detroit years ago had a population of about 1.8 million people. We now have about 650,000. And so you can do the math on how much vacant land there is, right? And when volunteers come together and remove the overgrown brush and weeds and illegal dumping on vacant properties, it not only makes the community far more visibly pleasing, but it actually reduces crime. And the Detroit Police Department came to us one year following one of our projects and said crime just dropped in 10 out of 11 categories over an entire year on the four square miles where you worked, including a 47% reduction in homicides. But the last thing I wanna say about the power of volunteerism on these projects is we're bringing people together from the city, from the suburbs, different races, different religions, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And one of the things that I found to be very true in our very polarizing environment in America that we find ourselves in these days is when you put two people together who are polar opposites on any of those subjects I just mentioned, 
And if they're working shoulder to shoulder on an action oriented project that they both agree on, something magical happens in their relationship and they begin to build new foundations of trust for each other. So that's a very important and uh, vital part of the work that we do. Yeah. Beautiful. Right. Because you're coming together based on shared values, a shared vision. And 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 that breaks down barriers and perceptions. I love that. Well, all this work, even with the hands-on volunteerism, this work still costs money. Like it's an investment. And the return on investment is clear. I mean, just the police department reports that crime has gone down, homicides have gone down, like re- all the reports, the, the survey that you mentioned. So talk to me about fundraising because you have had to become a bit of a fundraising machine. So fundraising, love it, hate it, dish. Yes, yes, yes. So no money, no mission. And I started Life Remodeled in 2010. I loathed fundraising at that time in my life because I felt like a used car salesman. I felt like I had to convince people to buy something they didn't necessarily want, right? And I also felt like I had to beg people for money. And there was an experience that I had in 2014 when our organization had just taken a major leap in strategy. We started off, we used to build houses in six days and give them to low-income families and do some other holistic services in the community. Well, in 2014, we transitioned to a new model where we actually renovated an existing high school, and that was a $5 million project. So we went from a, about a $350,000 project to $5 million in one year. And I had very little experience in this caliber or level of fundraising. And the main project the school wanted us to do was build them a synthetic football field because they hadn't had a home football field in six seasons. They played every game away, including homecoming. I don't know how you do that, but they found a way. We find a way in Detroit, right? And this football field was something very important to them because of the value that it would bring not only to the football team, but the entire community for camaraderie purposes, community building purposes. And so I didn't even know what a foundation was when we first began this project until I met the leader of one of the largest foundations in Michigan. And this person was very inspired by this work we were going to do. And, And he said, we're going to give you $200,000 for that football field. And when I received that check, our, our, our team was just, you know, bouncing around the room. This was amazing. This was the largest check we'd ever seen. And then we realized, wait a minute, this is only about 17% of the $1.2 million that we need for this field. What did we get ourselves into? Well, as the story continues, we got to a point where we were $300,000 in debt. If we were to sign the contract to build the field with our contractor, and long story short, we, we ended up signing it because we believed that this is what we were called to and that God was somehow going to provide a way. And we held our annual six-day project in 2014, where we had, at that point, 12,000 volunteers over six straight days. And we used to throw a party on the seventh day, which we no longer do, by the way, because we're way too exhausted at that point. <laughs> And it was the seventh day. We had just completed our six-day project. There was a giant hole in the ground for this football field that we had committed to. We were $300,000 in debt. And a family shows up right before I'm supposed to get on stage and give this speech and meet the new mayor of Detroit for the first time. And they said, can you give us a tour of Cody High School? And inside, I'm thinking to myself, absolutely not. I don't have time for a tour. I got to get prepared for this speech. But 
uh, the first words out of my mouth were, yes, absolutely. Because earlier that week, their son had called me and said, hey, my mom and dad want to donate $30,000 for this football field. And I'd never met this family before, and, but I'd met their son for about 30 seconds at his church. And I kind of made a, a joke. I said, well, Rob, you know, we really need $300,000. And he laughed and I laughed. He said, well, that's not going to happen. I said, I know, I'm just kidding, kind of. Anyway, this family shows up. I give them a tour. Halfway through our tour, they stop me. And the dad looks me in the eye and he said, do you still need that $300,000 for the football field? I said, yes, sir. You know, we're in debt, $300,000. And at that point, I was so tired from the week. I wasn't really tracking with where this conversation was going, right? And I was just answering his question very innocently. And then he said, now, you said whoever gives that $300,000 gets to name the field. By this time, I realized what was going on. I said, yes, sir, you, you can name this field whatever you'd like, right? He looks over at his wife. He gives her a nod. She gives a nod back. She pulls out the checkbook. He writes a $300,000 check right then and there. And he says, we want to name it Hope Field. Mm. And I lost it at that point emotionally. It was, it was a profound experience. One, I would have been perfectly happy with him naming the, the field after his family's last name. But to choose to do so in such a way was, was very profound. And to this day, this is the largest single charitable contribution this family has ever made. They're very generous. They give away large sums of money but this is the largest single check they've ever written. And they had no intention of doing so before they stepped foot on that site. And what that did for me was it showed me, you know, in essence, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. You mentioned that I would believe that wherever God guides, God's going to provide. And it hit me that I don't need to beg anybody for money. My job is merely to get to know people, find out who they are, what they're passionate about. And if their values align with the values of our organization, then all of a sudden, no longer am I trying to beg people for something. Instead, I'm introducing them to an opportunity to increase their values in society. And that, that set me down a path to where I actually fell in love with fundraising to this mm -hmm. day, because I love people. That's why I love fundraising. That is an incredible story and such a powerful lesson for all of us, right? Because our job, again, as you said, is to connect with their passion, their values, and to extend an opportunity, an invitation. And whether they choose to step into that invitation, I do think there is divine intervention sure. very often, but that's, that's really on them. So I love that story. And I am so pleased that you came over to the love fundraising side. <laughs> well, me too. It's a lot more fun to love what you're doing than, than trying to grit it out. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. Chris, I'd like to talk about your new book, Next Level Nonprofit. And I have a copy. I've read it cover to cover in one sitting. It's really good. I'm also an EOS fan follower. So, and our listeners will understand more about that in a little bit. You have some pretty incredible endorsements in the beginning of that book. And I just want to share a couple of them. Kevin Roach, who is the CEO at the Methodist Children's Home Society, says, Quote, in Next Level Nonprofit, Chris Lambert takes us on a journey from vision to one of the best managed and most impactful nonprofits Detroit has ever seen. Next Level Nonprofit is the playbook on how he got there. 
Now, honestly, if that doesn't send people to Amazon.com right now, I don't know what will. But then there's even more praise, right? So Gene Temple, of course, an amazing visionary and leader and evangelist for nonprofits and fundraising at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. He endorses it. Angelique Power, the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation, endorses it. It just goes on and on. And well-deserved. So I can tell you, with that at the front of the book, my expectations began to rise and you really met them. So tell us about the book and the organizational operating system it's built upon. Well, you've heard about Life Remodeled and you shared on the front end, Tammy, of this podcast about what we do and how far we've grown. And over the years, I've received two questions more times than I can count. People regularly ask us, how in the world did you grow so rapidly and achieve so much in a short period of time? And then number two, what did you do to build such a dynamic team? And the answers to those questions are in this book, as you've described. And I also, like I said, when I talked about life remodeled, I always like to start with why. So I really want to share why I wrote this book, why it's so important, not only to me personally, but I believe for the entire nonprofit sector. And it's because the people that our nonprofit organizations serve deserve the highest level of excellence we can possibly give them. And this book is a roadmap. It's a step-by-step guide. It's a manual. It's something that nonprofit leaders all over the country and really all over the world can read and self-implement this model. It's an operating system, all right? And when I say operating system, I'm not talking about software, but I will use software as a metaphor for a minute. So if you think about your iPhone or your Android phone or your laptop, whether you have iOS on an Apple or you have Windows on a PC or you have Android on your phone, the most important software on all of those devices is the operating system. It integrates every program that will ever run on that system forever. And it takes very complex inputs and uh, spits them out in a way that simplifies them so much that we often take our operating systems for granted. That's what next level nonprofit is for your organizational operations. And there's four major components to this system. Those are number one, team unity, number two, compelling vision, number three, right strategy, and number four, discipline execution. And I encourage people to think of this almost as a flywheel on a car. Every time your flywheel on your your vehicle turns over, your car is going to go faster and faster. This is almost as a flywheel in your organization that every time you turn over these four components, and by the way, they're not done strictly linearly. It's not as if you just start off saying, well, let me build the ultimate team before I come up with a compelling vision and the right strategy. These components are being built in day in, day out, over and over and over again in a way that gets your organization humming at what we would call the next level. I love it. So let's kind of lean into team unity. I mean, that's no small feat to achieve for sure, especially now. I feel like there are staffing shortages. We're trying to find our way through these hybrid work models, right? In the office, working remotely, something in between, culture dynamics. How do we create an environment that really fosters and maintains team unity? One of the sayings you'll find in the book is who 
is always greater than how. And so when we look at the challenges that we're facing as organizations, and many times we're trying to sit in a room and just hammer out, how do we do this? How do we get there? How do we get that done? If you have the right who's at the table, the right people in the right seats, and they become a true team of one, then you're always going to come up with the best possible solutions. And you're going to have the firepower to actually drive those ideas into action and across the finish line. And so one of the concepts that I talk about is we are always looking to recruit, develop, and retain reindeer. And the way we came up with that phrase is you've probably heard people say before when they're searching for an incredible new team member, maybe they're designing a job description and, and they, they get done with it and they say, wow, we really need a unicorn. And many times when people say that, they're saying it from a position where they don't actually believe they're going to find that person. Either they think that that person doesn't exist or they think that if someone so magical does exist, they'd never want to come work for your organization. They'd want to work somewhere more impressive or so on and so forth. Well, you know, unicorns don't exist, but I'm going to be completely honest here with you on this show. When I was a child, I was five years old when I discovered Santa wasn't real. And I was furious, by the way, my <laughs> parents were for lying to me. And at that moment, I actually thought reindeer weren't real either. And I didn't realize reindeer were real until sometime later in my teenage years when somebody educated me on that reality. And the truth about reindeer is they're actually incredible creatures. They're almost magical in their, in their own right. And so when it comes to recruiting and retaining and developing talent, we're looking for reindeer. And other phrases you may have heard would be A players or rock stars or all stars. These are the top 10% of people in the talent pool who are looking for the opportunities that you have available. And so attracting them is a big part of the puzzle. But, you know, reindeer don't just stay in your organization because everyone else wants your reindeer. And so retaining reindeer is a major part of what we're talking about and even developing people who aren't yet reindeer. And we've created a very simple tool to first help you identify, do you have reindeer? Do you have the right people in the right seats? And it's called the culture and capacity assessment. And so it's six very clear elements that you'll see in the book. Well, actually, it's really based on how many core values you have. So the culture piece is, are your team members aligned with your culture? And that's your core values. And I realize for many organizations listening today, you may or may not have core values. Brene Brown, in her extensive research, has found that only 10% of organizations that she's worked with are actually operationalizing their core values. And so core values, discovering who you truly are as an organization is essential to you finding reindeer, retaining reindeer, developing reindeer. And so there's a real process to, first of all, discovering your core values. And then once you identify them, you're committing that for the rest of your organization's existence, you will never hire anyone who doesn't already embody those core values before they start with your organization. And you're committing that this is how you're going to acknowledge people, celebrate people based on their performance and your culture. And this is how you're also going to call people to accountability when we get off track. And we all get off track. None of us are, are perfect. And so 
you're assigning red, yellow, or green regularly for people, whether they're embodying your core values. Green means most of the time, yellow means some of the time, red means usually not. And anytime anyone dips into yellow or red, that is a very serious problem or what we would call an opportunity. And that's the responsibility of that person's coach. We don't use the word manager. We use the word coach. And I can explain why if you want to know more. Well, you know, because you've read the book. But that's the responsibility of that person's coach to inform them within 24 hours and to listen to that direct support. We don't call anyone direct reports. We call them direct supports uh, to see if they're on the same page as to where that person has missed the mark and discern if that person's coachable to want to rise to the level of green. And if they are, help them get on that coaching plan that within 30 days, they're scoring green again. But if they're not willing to rise to that minimum ethical level of expectations of who we are as an organization, who our culture is, then it's time to help move them off the bus. The capacity side is three questions. And again, you're scoring people on green, yellow, or red. Green, most of the time, yellow, some of the time, red, usually not. The first question is, do they understand what their seat requires? And this may sound like a very basic question, but the reality is many of us have, as nonprofit leaders have brought people onto our team without first creating a very thorough and comprehensive job description and clearly getting on the same page of exactly what this role requires. So many of us have made that mistake. The other mistake we make is, is you know, somewhat more innocent because organizations must change and evolve and grow. And over time, job descriptions change and evolve and grow in cases. And sometimes we've made these changes without getting on the same page with our direct supports in alignment. And so, first of all, does this person understand what the role requires? Second of all, are they passionately committed to do everything the role requires? And for instance, I don't mean that everything that they do puts butterflies in their stomach. If taking out the trash is on your job description, I'm not saying that it's got to feel like a, you know, a pinnacle moment in your life, but you're committed to do that task at the greatest level of excellence and passion possible. And the last piece is, do they have the capacity to do this role with excellence? And capacity is around questions of time capacity. If the job requires 40 hours a week, are they still at a place in life where they're able to give 40 hours a week? You know, sometimes people experience different seasons where uh, things change. Um, physical capacity, emotional capacity, mental capacity, intellectual capacity, so on and so forth. And this tool is one in which we help you internalize it and it becomes a worldview first and foremost so that you can look for opportunities to affirm your team members and to actually uh, talk about them behind their backs in what we call positive gossip. And we encourage you to brag about your team members. We do it all the time at Life for Model because we're aware of where they are thriving in our culture, where they're thriving in capacity. So first it's a tool for affirming people, but it's also a tool for accountability. And when someone falls, out of that green zone, that's an opportunity to coach them immediately and to develop them to what they've already committed to. And again, sometimes people are in, in different seasons and it's just time for them to move on to a different place. But one of the reasons this tool is so important 
is because reindeer only want to work with other reindeer. If you put high-performing team members on a team with non-high-performing team members, it will cause significant challenges for the entire organization. So when someone in an organization is not aligned, they're not only doing harm to themselves by remaining in that role, they're doing harm to the rest of the team because they're, they're going to leak that, that frustration, either aggressively or passive-aggressively. And they're going to poison the rest of the team. They're going to bring people down. They're going to bring down the, the ambition of the team when you put up with people challenges of a low-performing person. And most importantly, they're going to harm the people that we serve because the people that we serve are not going to get the highest level of excellence that we can give them. So this is a very holistic approach, which we've simplified into a tool that you can use as a worldview where you begin to see your people regularly through the culture and capacity assessment. So powerful. How long does it take an organization to adopt and really have that philosophy, that approach, be become part of the culture to be, you know, first nature, not even second nature, but first nature? So what I'll advocate for in this book that you'll see is it's not a la carte. It, 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 you can certainly take any one or two or three of these tools and implement them, and you will see some forward momentum in your organization, but it is designed as the whole package. And these are all principles that have been around for a very long time. These are principles of best practices, yes, that are often found in the business world, but one of the things I say to nonprofits is I'm not asking you to become more like businesses. I'm asking you to be better. Because the nonprofit sector offers something that most businesses aren't readily offering, and that's purpose and passion. But the for-profit sector, by and large, is far better at operational excellence. And this model is something that you can read this book and you can self-implement it, and you will see radical growth if you implement the entire package. And that can be done in about a year's time. But if you want to go a whole lot further, a whole lot faster, you're going to want to hire one of our coaches. And in the for-profit world, this type of coaching costs fifty-five dollars to $85,000 a year. We're doing it for only $15,000 a year. We're going to raise it to twenty next year. But we wanted to make it highly accessible because this is how much we believe in it. And once you learn this process, you're going to go to the next level, but it doesn't stop there you can continuously go to the next level. We're never going to arrive at a place where we just coast, right? None of us, I don't think any of us want that, right? All of us want to serve more people yeah. and serve them more effectively. It, it reindeer want to serve more people there and serve go. them more effectively, right? There you go. Exactly. And so this process is one in which every year you become more and more informed, and educated and united as a team. You come up with even more compelling vision, even better strategy. Come hell or high water, no matter what comes down the pipeline, whether it's COVID 3.0, through this process, your team will be able to navigate any and every challenge with the highest level of discipline and achieve accomplishments before you never even thought were possible. Incredible. Talk about how we create that clear, compelling vision and 
the right strategy to achieve it using this operating system. I think the vision comes so naturally to some people, but a vision without a plan, right? It's just a dream. There's some quote in there somewhere, some famous quote. But the point is, we need a compelling vision that's clear, that's inspiring, that is really going to make a difference. And we need the underpinnings of a strategy and plan, and frankly, the discipline to systematically follow the plan. Give us just a few nuggets on how we approach that. Well, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And strategic planning is a major part of this book and this system. However, it is very, very distinct from the vast majority of strategic planning consultancies I have seen. And so here's two extremes that I've noticed in the nonprofit world. And these are extremes. These are caricatures, right? There's all kinds of in-between scenarios here. But extreme number one would be the nonprofit that hasn't taken the time to create a robust strategic plan. And that would be common of a lot of smaller and even mid-sized nonprofits. But extreme number two is the, the nonprofit that hired a wonderfully paid consultant who helped them to create a beautiful 20-page plus strategic plan that is doing a remarkable job sitting on a shelf collecting dust. And nobody in the organization actually knows what's in there. But when a large prospective funder comes to the office, we pull it out and we show them, look, look, we have a strategic plan, right? And I got to tell you, I think that that type of a process actually does more harm than good. And it inoculates teams against the possibility of what they're actually capable of achieving. And so when we create strategic plans, we show you how to create a two-page plan. And that is absolutely essential that you're distilling it down to two pages. Page one answers the question, where are we going? That's vision. Page two answers the question, how will we get there? That is strategy. And one of the benefits of boiling it down to two pages is you're going to get it to a place where you can very clearly communicate it to every single team member in your organization, no matter how large, you could have 2,000 employees. And with a two-page strategic plan, everyone can know exactly where you're going and how you're going to get there and then be able to translate how their specific role, no matter what their role is, actually ties in to the achievement of that plan on a daily basis. And if you have an organization of only three people, the same concept applies. And when it comes to vision, one of the places that we start with in strategic planning is what we call your 10-year moonshot. And so in 1961, former President Kennedy, he said this, I have this quote on my, my wall in here, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon. He should have said a person, right? Uh, but we weren't quite there yet. As, as Not society, yet. Right? Landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to earth. Now, when that statement was made, in many ways, it was ludicrous. The technology did not exist. The math wasn't even known of how to get this spaceship back to earth safely. However, what we did as a country is we did more than say a big, hairy, audacious goal. We worked backwards from that goal to ensure that we did create the right technology. We broke it down into bite-sized tasks to, to learn the math and to achieve that goal. And so just as a side note, I can't stand it, Tammy, 
when nonprofits make these uh, aspirational goals like, well, we envision a world by the year 2040 where no child goes hungry. You know, look, if you're going to say something like that, you better have a plan to achieve it because I think it causes damage to the people that we lead and the people that we serve to state aspirational statements that we don't actually have a plan in place to achieve. And so when you create your moonshot, it has to be smart, all right? And we define smart as S specific, M measurable, A ambitious, R realistic, and T time bound. So if President Kennedy would have said, oh, we're gonna go to Mars before 1970, that, that wouldn't have been achievable. Now we could say something like that today and set a goal. Or if he would have said, we're going to land on the sun, <laughs> that would have been just uh, ludicrous, right? Right, right. And so that's how we start the vision process. And then we break it down on page two into what do you need to do over the next year to be on track to hit your moonshot? And we actually break it down into three years, one year, and even 90 days. And every 90 days, we're assessing our last quarter and we're planning out our next quarter. And every year, we're assessing our previous year and we're planning out our next year. Yeah. What I love about that, I mean, I love so much about it, but one of the things I love about it is the cadence of meetings to evaluate, are we on track? Are we behind? Are we like, are we ahead? Because so often we lose track of those goals in the day-to-day -day urgent, right? The tyranny of the urgent. And so we lose track, we lose sight, and pretty soon we're six months into the year and we're scratching our head like, what were those goals? And that, to your point, doesn't serve who we lead. It doesn't serve the community that we're partnering with. So I think that's incredibly powerful. We've created a meeting framework called the weekly. And this is literally the weekly leadership team meeting. Every week is 90 minutes. And the individuals who work here at Life for Model will tell you they have never experienced more impactful meetings anywhere they've been. And many of them are very experienced leaders and, and reindeer, right, in their own right. Never experienced more meaningful meetings than through this model. And, uh, you know, there's a book called Death by Meeting by Patrick Lencioni. And so many of our listeners today may be thinking to themselves, how in the world can you create these uh, meetings that I would actually call like very exciting and all of our team members call them that. And this is where we're driving the ball down the field and, and we've done it. And it's a, a formula that works that actually is very organic, but structured. And the same thing's true for every 90 days. One of the things I found is that most nonprofits aren't doing quarterly offsites where they're spending an entire day working on their organization, assessing their past, planning for their future. This is one of the most fundamental exercises that is essential to organizational health, to team health, and to organizational excellence and strategy for the future. And then at the end of every year, you want to take a two-day, full-day offsite. But I'm not talking about just going into the woods and climbing ropes, all right? Although there's plenty of time for that, but that's not what we do during these sessions. But we, we do other team building sessions that, that, that incorporate some of those things. These sessions are highly strategic and you're building team unity and camaraderie because it is so empowering to a team to share a compelling, exciting vision that gets you out of bed in the morning, right? It's a rally cry. 
that you know you can actually achieve and you can see the ball moving down the field. That gets you going and, and motivates you so much that when you do have team members who are not performing at their highest caliber, usually those team members self-select out. They leave the organization because it becomes very uncomfortable for them to be a part of a team where there's such radical accountability. In our system, you know exactly where the ball gets dropped every time. And it's not so that we can throw anyone under the bus. It's just so that we, we have such clear communication and understanding of everyone's roles and responsibilities. You instantly know, right? And when that happens, we create an environment where people can be vulnerable and transparent and they can say, hey, I dropped the ball. I messed up. And okay, hey, that's fine. We all screw up, you know, but here's the plan moving forward and we get it back on track. But if you have a team member who's dropping balls and is not acknowledging and is not carrying their weight, well, they're going to feel really awkward because they're bringing down the whole team. And most importantly, they're hurting the people they serve. Yeah. Powerful, powerful. Tell us about the role of board members in the next level nonprofit operating system. So the role of a board is governance and strategy and ensuring accountability of the CEO or executive director. And this model and these four components that I've painted is very much based on the right strategic plan that has a compelling vision to it. That plan needs to be created by the executive leadership team through a process that we've identified and, and created. And there needs to be continuous communication and collaboration with the board of where the executive leadership team creates the next iteration of that plan. The CEO takes it to the board and the board chair, and they discuss and shoot holes in it where necessary and ask the right questions and get to a place where they're in agreement. This is the right plan. It's a compelling vision. We can do this. Now go get it, right? And it's essential for a board to, I believe, read this entire book that I've written so they can have a comprehensive understanding of what is actually happening within this organization from a right people, right seat perspective, from a strategic planning perspective, and from an execution perspective, and even from a coaching perspective where then the board chair will have a much better understanding of how to even coach their CEO and help their CEO be affirmed and challenged throughout this process of implementation and execution. Awesome. How do our listeners learn more about the Next Level Nonprofit resources? We have a website called nlncoaching.org. You mentioned earlier, the book is on Amazon. It's on paperback. It's on Kindle. It will be on Audible soon by the end of September at the latest, but it currently is available on eight different audiobook platforms, Google, Spotify, uh, a number of others. Fantastic. And we'll include a link to the website in our show notes for sure, and the Amazon link as well. At the end of each episode, I'd like to ask a few rapid fire insightful questions to give even more value. Are you ready? Bring it on. I don't know if I'm ready, but I'm I just want to go for it, you know? I love it, Chris. First question, what's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Everything is about relationships. People give to people. Amen, amen. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? And it's okay to be shameless here if you like. Well, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm certainly I recommend my book, but because this is a fundraising podcast, 
I believe the best fundraising book I've ever written is called The Generosity Network by Julia McRae. Love it. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess? I'm going to say likability. And then these next two are core values of life or model. They need to always find a way. And third, they need to have the attribute that we call bold humility. All right. If you're only bold, you're an arrogant jerk. <laughs> if you're only humble, you are a doormat that gets stepped on. And great fundraisers learn how to wield these seemingly paradoxical attributes where they're bold, they're confident in who they are and what they bring to the table, and they're not afraid to be told no. Or even if they are afraid, they have enough confidence to move forward into the future with, with passion. But they do so with endless humility that recognizes that we don't know everything and we need each other and we're constantly learning. We're lifelong learners. And the people that we're fundraising with actually have a tremendous amount to teach us. Amazing. What's your favorite fundraising application or tool? Well, I love capital campaigns because they are so ambitious. They're big, hairy, audacious goals. And they're also very much reliant on the years of relational capital that you've already built long before the capital campaign begins. They're very energizing for me. Love it. What's your favorite conference and why? Oh, wow. I I'm going to say it's in Michigan and it's called the Mackinac Policy Conference. And I've never seen anything like it in, in the country. We gather on Mackinac Island, which is all the way in the north of Michigan. You got to drive over four hours to get there, right, from Detroit. But it's over 1,800 executive leaders, CEOs from some of the largest companies and every political leader at a high level in the state of Michigan. And it's uh, an experience where the relational connectivity that happens in that one week while we're on an island, by the way, that doesn't have cars and there's horses that drive us around. Uh, it's a conference experience like none other because my favorite thing about conferences is the opportunity to connect with other like-minded people. Yeah, love that. And I have been on that big porch. It truly is extraordinary. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? I would say um, no matter how good you get at your job, you will never achieve the hopes and dreams and ambitions you have until you build an incredibly dynamic team. And the difference between illness and wellness is the I and the we. And Building that team takes tremendous intentionality and a team that achieves this right strategy, compelling vision and disciplined execution will take your passion farther than you could ever achieve, no matter how talented and skilled you become. Fabulous. Chris, thank you for joining us. Wow, Tammy, this has been a pleasure and honor, and I, I think you have an incredible show here. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Chris, his incredible work, or follow him on social media, we've included links to his handles in the show notes, as well as links to all the other resources that we've talked about today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a fundraising transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, 
where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.